Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're alive. Hope you're well. I'm live. I get my words mixed up here with my good buddy, Jeff Snyder. Jeff, we were just talking about the Federal Reserve. And the other day I called you actually from the Bahamas uh, because I was going over a presentation on what I thought was uh, pretty obvious that the Fed didn't really control interest rates, or at least they didn't control liquidity through bank reserves from 1980 to 2007. And I always focus on that time frame because the amount of reserves held at the Fed was the same. Uh, it, it fluctuated a little bit, but if you look at 1980, it was right around 40 billion. And then in 2007, it was also 40 billion. So my initial thought there was how on earth are you managing the Fed funds rate if it's through open market operations? Because the story or what you read in the textbooks is if the Fed wants the interest rates to go down, well, they'll just add a few more reserves in there, right? Because then there's more reserves, so the interest rate goes down. Or if they want the interest rates to go up, well, they take some reserves out of the system. And this was prior to QE. I always thought that's the way it worked. I'm like, how are they bringing interest rates from 15% down to 5% from 1980 to 2007 if the reserves stay the same? And then, and then you told me, well, they don't really do that. They just kind of say, hey, please, banks, uh, you know, make interest rates, the overnight rate at 5% or whatever the Fed wants. But then I got to thinking and I'm like, okay, well, if that's true, if bank reserve, if there are demand, there is demand for bank reserves, then how would the level of bank reserves not fluctuate at all, at all when M2 goes from 1.5 to 7.5 trillion and interest rates go from 15 to 5? If there's demand for these bank reserves, if the banks are actually using them, then they would have to do something. Uh, you know, th you would have to have those bank reserves go from 40 billion up to let's say uh, 400 billion, but they flatline. And so I've been thinking about this a lot. So I wanted to get you on, and I know you've been talking about this a lot, how the Fed really doesn't control rates. They don't control uh, money, M2, and they definitely, definitely don't control bank liquidity, because if the banks don't need reserves, they can make their own liquidity. So I'll stop there and let you chime in. Yeah, George, you know, the funny thing is, I remember back in school, they, they went through, you know, how does the Fed control interest rates? Because that was the overriding message. The Fed does yeah, control yeah. interest rates. The Fed controls liquidity. And then they would give you the list of the ways in which the Fed controlled, supposedly controlled liquidity. It's just like you said, open market operations are usually at the top. And that's the most intuitive. It makes sense. But then they got to the bottom of the list and they were already kind of, I remember the professors were like, yeah, I'm not sure I should include this. And it was a term called moral suasion. I'm like, moral oh, suasion? What the hell is that? And moral that. suasion is we're the Fed. We're good. We work on behalf of society. So banking system, why don't you help us out here? If we want the rate to go down to 5%, why don't you do it for us? And oh, by the way, if you disagree with our stance, we'll do some open market operations. We'll really embarrass you. We'll, we'll cause some pain. So don't ever fight the Fed. And it was really moral suasion should have been the first one on the list because that's really how it works. And as we talk about, you know, the conversation, the banking system works hand in glove with the Fed anyway. So it's not like there's this, this adversarial relationship between the banks and the Fed. Oh, the Fed wants to cut rates. We don't want the Fed to cut rates. We're going to force them into open market operation. That's not, that's not how it works. There's a symbiotic relationship there. So moral suasion is, Greenspan and the Fed and the FOMC members and the local branches, usually the New York branch, they get together with the bankers because they have these groups and these meetings anyway. And they'd say, look, we think we need to lower the Fed funds rate to 5%. Any objections? 
And the banks would say, no, nah, we can make 5% work. That's no big deal. And so the banking system would lower the rate and it would stay at 5%. And so what the Fed's job was really about was making sure that if there was any periods where there was unforeseen circumstances like 1997, 98 tax collections, then the Fed would do open market operations to keep things smoothly. But the banking system is the one that actually set the Fed funds rate in cooperation with the federal funds, so or the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC. So the FOMC was basically using the banking system to control, or at least influence the uh, the the market for reserves, which is what really federal funds is all about. Let's am, really am, I, am I right to think that the reason that the banks could do that is because if they needed to lend to each other overnight? they would simply create their own liquidity. They didn't need the bank reserves on the Fed's balance sheet to do that. No, that's, I mean, there's no way you could have had that much liquidity in this. As you were saying, George, is to get this massive multi tens of trillion system with only, you know, 15 billion in reserves available. If there was any sort of minor hiccup, then, you know, rates would have skyrocketed out of control if there was no actual other form of liquidity. And the other form of liquidity was, what the banks were creating anyway. And so what we're really saying here is that the interest rate for federal funds and some of these overnight rates aren't wasn't ever really that important because the banks would lower the their interest rate to say 5% or you know back then it was a little bit higher. So they go from 7 to 6% and that didn't make a big difference. It didn't make a it didn't make a huge difference in the way the banks operated their credit uh, portfolios. Which is, you know, that's where it really gets into more interesting conversation because that's the other part we're taught Right, because the Fed controls the short-term interest rates, and how does that supposed to control the economy? Well, if we lower interest rates, that well, that's supposed to make it cheaper for banks to borrow. Therefore, they can add more credit; it's more profitable credit because there's a higher net interest spread. But that's you know, banks never really considered the net interest spread anyway. It's really it's it's the monetary policy isn't really monetary policy. It's sort of this interest rate signaling mechanism, which the banking system is is only too happy to go along with because. They're working with the Fed anyway. So Fed gets together with the banks. They say, we're going to lower interest rates. The banking system says we don't have any objections. So we're going to we're going to we're going to work with this new target rate for federal funds. And then everything else just kind of falls along as it as it was anyway. Right. And I want to be very clear for people watching this because we kind of say, oh, the banks create their own liquidity as though people should just know how they do that. But but I, I think that's where it gets confusing. So what Jeff and I are talking about there is the banks just extending credit to one another. That, that's how they're creating this liquidity. So they don't need the bank reserves because if they transfer, let's say, a liability, a deposit liability, that Bank of America transfers to Wells Fargo, well, if they don't have, if they don't want to transfer the bank reserves, they don't need it, then, then where whoever receives the liability can just extend credit to the bank that sent them the liability to begin with. The bot and I don't want to get too confusing in the weeds here, but the bottom line is banks are just constantly extending credit to one another, and that's how they create their own liquidity. Yeah, it's not cost-free, though. We need to make sure make, make that point, though, um, because there are balance sheet considerations. Now, the, the cost during the, the, the pre-2008 era were very small. And by cost, I mean there's capital constraints, there's internal mechanisms to make sure that you know all of these... You're not just creating credit and just throwing it on their balance sheet. You're not just creating money out of thin air. Uh, like they have management. Yeah, there's there's different management techniques that go that you have to different mandates that you have to meet. So banks can create credit out of thin air, but it's not cost free. There there's balance sheet considerations that they have to live up to, which were again they were not very 
they were not as big as they are today in the pre-2008 era. So banks could extend liquidity fairly freely, but not completely freely. Just want to make that point. Yeah, but they, they could extend it freely enough to the point where we had a system with $40 billion in reserves. We had $7.5 trillion in M2 in the U.S., but outside the U.S., let's just say there was, I mean, I'm sure you'd know this better than I would, but probably, what, $40, $50 trillion on balance sheets outside of the United States and inside in 2007? Yeah, I mean, a massive amount, and it was really mostly off-balance sheet. Yeah, so that somehow was uh, being managed with only $40 billion. And obviously, again, to be, not to beat a dead horse here, but the only way that that is even possible is if the banks were creating 99% of the liquidity on their own absent the Federal Reserve. And that's really okay. what a ledger system is about. It's about you know extending credit to one another um, without the need for any kind of central government token that acts as the final settlement mechanism. It's, you know, if I extend credit to you, George, and I say, look, I'm going to lend you $20. I just keep track of it on my, my, my ledger. You keep track of it on your ledger. And as long as we're, we're okay with transacting with one another, then we can just keep, we don't need to, we don't need to involve the federal reserve. We don't need to involve the federal government. We're just keeping track of who owes what. And as long as we're, you know, we're keeping it within the, 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 uh, small group that we're transacting with, it works really well. It's elegant in, in, a, in quite a way, uh, quite a different ways. So I think the argument would be, okay, Jeff and George, I get what you're saying prior to 2008 quantitative easing, but now we've got so much, uh, so many reserves in the system that the Fed can actually control those overnight rates because they're just paying IOR. Or, you know, and then they've got the bottom reverse repo on the top at the, the discount window or discount rate, whatever it's called now. And therefore, they can manage that rate a lot better. And therefore, the Fed maybe is more important now than they were prior to 2008. How would you respond to that? Well, that's the implication, too. I mean, it's but even with the IOR double floor with RRP supposedly as the as the wholesale floor and IOR as the depository floor, that's how it's described. Right. Um, we still see that that's not always the case because, you know, uh, how many times did we see earlier this year, last year, where uh, SOFR would be below the RRP or the broad general collateral ge- repo rates would be below the RRP? But that's, I mean, you know, that's kind of splitting hairs here. But the, the general theme is that with the Fed's balance sheet ex- exceptional, with there with being a doctrine of abundant reserves, there's massive amounts of reserves. It even there are a few basis points here and there doesn't really matter. So the Fed is basically controlling all interest rates, whether it's 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 within the basis point and it's completely exact doesn't really matter. But that just gives us leads us right back to the question or the, the topic we just talked about. Do interest rates really matter all that much in the real economy? Is it all about interest rates? If the Fed is the dominant factor in money markets, um, does that mean they're the dominant factor in the financial system and they're dominant factor in the economy? And that's where. You know, time and again, especially in the QE era before we got to 2020, it became clear that this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter all that much what the Fed does as far as setting the interest rate. The level of reserves don't matter either, except for helping the Fed set the interest rate. We're making too much out of too little, which is understandable because that's all the Fed does. And if the Federal Reserve only has bank reserves, then it's going to make a big deal out of bank reserves. It's going to tell you everything is about bank reserves. When We've got enormous amounts of empirical evidence that show bank reserves don't matter. Short-term money rates don't matter except when they get out of their tolerances. 
So that's really the problem here. We're back in the moral suasion argument with a little bit of a difference here. The moral suasion isn't necessarily about you know working with banks to ma maintain a certain level of federal funds. It's about making the federal funds rate into this massive, um, the biggest signal that there could possibly be in the financial system, the economy. That's what the moral suasion has become. But really, when you think about the entire system, it's still the same system as it was before, except now there are more bank reserves. And we're yeah, supposed to believe that's a meaningful change when it's not. Right? It's just yeah. not. Yeah, we have more. We have more of what didn't matter before. Right. Which is so why should they right. matter now? <laughs> because if you're a commercial bank, you're still you still have the same trade offs to make. It's not, oh, I have money in a vault that I can now spend. I still have balance sheet constraints that I have to live up to. It doesn't matter if I have bank reserves or not. As you're saying, in the pre-bank reserve era, the pre-abundant reserve era, banks would create liquidity as needed because they had the balance sheet space and capacity to do so. They didn't need the reserves. The same is true today. They and have the reserves, but they too. don't have the banking, they don't have the balance sheet capacity. So it doesn't matter if they have the reserves. They're at the same right. place, but just a little bit, you know, different uh, setup. But we also want to include risk reward because that's just about balance sheet capacity. It's well, about downside risk. So if the risk reward or the counterparty risk is very low, then the system can provide liquidity. But if it's not, uh, if the counterparty risk is very high, then there's going to be very little liquidity that's produced by the system. And then the argument is, well, the Fed can step in and provide that liquidity. But no, that's not the case, because if the reserves don't matter to begin with, then the reserves aren't going to do anything to lower the perceived counterparty risk. And therefore, the overall liquidity of the bank is here. Yeah, you're just yeah. using a different settlement, a different means of settlement. That's all it is. It, but what really matters is the balance sheet constraint. And those balance sheet constraints are just what you described, George. And that's it's the risk reward relationship. Little, it's, except it's a little more formalized. There's a lot more mathematics involved with it, you know, VAR and some of the other metrics that banks still use. I think there's enhanced VARs now, but essentially it's, that's what it is. How do we, how do we incorporate perceptions of risk and reward into balance sheet controls? And there's more controls beyond that, especially in the, 2000, the post 2008 era. But again, the same, the same constraints or the same setup uh, as before. doesn't matter if you have a different settlement mechanism. If you don't have the balance sheet constraint to do something with it, nothing happens. And that's really, yeah. that's really the issue here. Okay. So I want to get into growth inflation expectations and interest rates with Fisher and, and, and the guy's name is Newt Wick, Wixel, right? Is that yeah. Newt Wixel? Okay. And then supply of, of, of treasuries. But before we do, uh, I want to talk about bailouts because I, I've been saying in my videos, kind of just thinking out loud that maybe the Fed's just not even part of the monetary system, but they are part of the government to the extent that they can extend bailouts. Uh, and if they can bail out a bank, let's say, well, is there an argument that that's anti-deflationary? Because if they, like, let's say they didn't have the, the BTFP or something like that, and all those banks would have actually, or we had, would, have, would have more banks than did actually go bust. And therefore, you know, we have credit contraction to a greater degree within the banking system because the Fed steps in with that bailout and then the counterparty risk doesn't go down as low as it otherwise would have been. So is an argument for the Fed mattering to that extent because they can issue these bailouts. Yeah, that, that's certainly an issue, but um, I'm not sure the issue here is the primary, the primary deflationary issue isn't, isn't necessarily about counterparty risk. This is what comes up in the, in the lesson of Bear Stearns because uh, the Fed looked at Bear Stearns and said, we have a successful bailout. Terrific. We did a great job. 
We showed the world that we can we eliminate counterparty risk because we got Bear Stearns into J.P. Morgan and everyone's happy. Except just a couple months later, we had Lehman and everything else. The issue was not counterparty risk. Counterparty risk is part of it. The issue is liquidity in the system, which is recirculation of funds. And what the rest of Wall Street said saw with Bear Stearns was, holy crap, one of us can actually go out of business here. Now, the Fed said, no, we didn't go out of business. It didn't fail. We merged it with Bear Stearns, or we merged it with J.P. Morgan. But every Wall Street management team said, yeah, but Bear Stearns management got wiped out. They're out of jobs. Their equity's gone. Yeah, they got $1 per share. Big, big deal there. So the, the Wall Street firm said, holy crap, this isn't about counterparty risk. This is about my risk. This is about me being the next Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers where my equity, right. my, my entire life savings is wiped out. So it, if the Federal Reserve bails out firms, all that means is there are firms that need to be bailed out. And I don't want to be the next one that could be bailed out. And so I'm going to pull back credit, even though that counterparty risk with the firm that got bailed out goes away. The reason I'm pulling back is because I don't want to be that next guy that gets bailed out. That's really right. the issue here. And that becomes a huge deflationary impediment to the circulation of money and credit in the system because nobody wants to take any risk. I don't want to be the next Bear Stearns. So I'm going to build up my cash cushion. I'm going to build up my collateral cushion. I'm going to de-risk my portfolio. I don't want to be the guy that gets bailed out. Right. So on net balance, you still have deflationary money in that environment, even though you've got those Fed bailouts. Right. And so what the Federal Reserve would say is that, OK, it's not about bailing out individual institutions. We're still going to do that because we don't like failures. Failures are bad. Um, as you saw with Silicon Valley Bank just earlier this year, we don't like that. So instead, what we're going to do is make sure that we can bail out markets. We can bail out um, prices. We can be anything in the financial marketplace that has nothing to do with the monetary system. This is one of the things that if you listen to what the Fed says or the ECB or any central bank around the world, they tell you they're no longer central banks. They're not lenders of last resort, as you would have re as you would have seen in the 19th century, Walter Badgett, all that stuff. Instead, they're what they think of as market of last resort. Think of March of 2020 mm -hmm. when the corporate credit market was starting to freeze up again. The Fed came up with this corporate buyout or co corporate bailout, corporate bond bailout, where they didn't actually buy any bonds. That's what the Fed is today. What they're, what they're trying to do is short-circuit any type of, of deflationary monetary event by leveling off prices so that when firms are forced into fire sales because liquidity is bad and they can't do anything about liquidity, then at least they have a buyer for these prices or for these assets that are fire sales so that the, the sales don't go down too far and trigger that systemic self-reinforcing cycle that we saw in 2008. So even the Fed's core mission has changed from an actual central bank lender of last resort, which they can't do, to this market of last resort, or at extreme cases, maybe we do have to provide individual liquidity to certain banks that uh, if, if they get themselves into trouble. But essentially, they're they tr they're trying to become a stopgap whenever crisis actually uh, develops. But does that actually change the behavior of the system as those things are happening? That's really the question here. Is, are we still in the Bear Stearns mode where Wall Street says, yeah, the Fed had to bail out, you know, how many regional banks this year? I don't want to be the next one. So I'm going to start de-risking my portfolio, de-risking all the, you know, less money markets, less money in money markets, less credit extended into the real economy because I want to avoid the situation where I've got uh, Jay Powell to deal with. Right. Now, I want to get into growth and inflation next, but I've got, I'm, Usually I don't do this, but I've actually got notes for this discussion today because <laughs> there were some specific things that I've been wrestling with 
that I wanted to go over with you. And one of the thought experiments that I've used a couple times in some videos recently is, is trying, because the argument there, again, to your point, you've heard it a thousand times, is that the Fed controls interest rates. And a lot of people that don't really dive into the numbers assume that that Fed funds rate even control, you know, controls the whole curve. It controls the 10 years. So if the Fed's raising rates, well, then that's going to negatively impact the economy because hiring, borrowing costs and yada, yada, yada. And if they're lowering rates, the opposite's going to happen. But one thing I encouraged people to do is go back to June of 2022 or even before, let's say nine months prior to June, when we had inflation, the headline CPI at 9.1%. And I try to encourage people to ask themselves right, ar right around uh, that time, the 10-year treasury was trading approximately 4%, if, if my memory serves me well. So I, I tried to... Was it less than four? Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, 22, yeah. Okay, so uh, but wherever it was, just ask yourself, if the Fed would have stepped back and just done nothing, let's say they would not have raised rates, and rates still would have been, the Fed funds still would have been at zero, but yet we have 9.1% CPI. Do you think the 10-year would have been at 3%? The 10-year would have been at 4%? My argument is likely it would have been even higher. So were the... So... The punchline there is when the Fed, quote unquote, raised rates, are you sure they didn't actually lower them? <laughs> and, and therefore, and if they if by raising rates, they lowered rates, if the 10 year Treasury is the most important rate for the overall economy, then how can you argue that the Fed controls those rates at all when they do the opposite? Right. When the Fed's raising rates, they're actually lowering rates. Is, is there anything to that thought experiment? Yeah, I don't see it that way. I think if the Fed had not raised rates in, in 2022, then rates would have stayed low throughout. Because what the market was pricing is that this temporary supply shock was transitory. I hate to know people hate that word. But over the long run, rates want to go back to where they were pre-2020. Pre rates, growth and inflation expectations over the long run have not changed for the last couple of years. Uh, we're still in the same rut as we had been in prior to that. And we had some redistribution go on in, in 2020, 2021 that changed things up in many ways, might have actually harmed the long run trajectory of the economy. So had right. the Fed not done anything in 2022, I don't think rates would have gone all that high to begin with. They were they were modestly better than they were, had been in, modestly higher than they had been in 2020, of course, because 2020 looked completely awful for a long, like it was going to be awful for a long period of time. So we'd expect rates to go up a little bit, and they did a little bit in 2021, but they were not skyrocketing with consumer prices because the market judged the long run possibility of consumer prices staying high was exceptionally low. At some point, consumer prices were going to go down. The economy would reveal itself as the same crappy one that we've been in since 2008 and uh, demand for safety and liquidity would be high again. It's, you know, great. So in that, in that, in that instance, in your view, just going through that thought experiment, we could say that the Fed didn't control rates, but they influenced them when we're focusing on the tenure. Absolutely. Because that's part of You think about if you're owning a treasury bond, especially, you know, start at the short end of the curve. I always use the two-year because the two-year is a pivotal part of the curve. You want to own a two-year treasury that yields, say, 5% when you, when you accept 5% return, when you know that the Federal Reserve, which is going to pay through the IOR and RRP, say 6%, maybe you don't want to own the two-year treasury because 
doesn't matter the economic reasons. You can get a short-run return and just roll that over for two years. If you believe the Fed can pay 6% for two years, you're going to take the 6 You're not going to take the 5% of the two-year treasury. So yes, they can influence the curve. And then the two-year treasury influences the three-year and influences the five-year. If you can get a two-year at 5%, are you going to own a five-year treasury at, say, 3%? Only if you think that interest rates are going to go down in the future. So the Fed does influence interest rates. It doesn't control them. That's a key okay. difference. And as Ben Bernanke said in 2011, there is nothing magical about the federal funds rate. We're trying to make it magical because that's the only way the Fed can portray this, this idea that it's controlling everything. If we make the federal funds rate the starting point for everything and everything just falls in line from the federal funds rate, then they can, they can pretend that they have this element control. But the moment a yield curve flattens out, that's already the, the market acting independently. The moment the yield curve inverts, that's a clear signal. The market is acting independently. So the Fed is setting the short run rate and everybody's basing their investment considerations off the short run rate, but it's not the sole consideration. And when you see periods of inversion, it's not even the most important consideration. That's really, the, it's, more, it's more complicated. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. So that's when we go into growth and inflation expectations, overriding getting a higher interest rate on Fed funds or something that's close to an overnight rate like the one-month treasury. So then that's where, where you get that inversion. Because my, my pushback there with what you're saying is, you know, interest rates would go up at the long end of the curve at the Fed's raising rates because you would have money coming out of, let's say, the 10-year treasury and going into the, the short-term rates because the risk-reward makes a lot more sense. But that would imply that demand can fluctuate quite dramatically with the long end of the curve. And the argument there is going to be, Jeff, well, the supply is is getting so high and going to be so high moving forward with the deficits and the, the doom loop, you know, and the interest rates going up. Therefore, the, 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 the um, uh, amount of money that you have to pay on the existing debt goes up and therefore interest rates go even higher because there's more debt issued, yada, yada, yada. Um, but see that, that, but you've said recently that you don't think that higher supply is going to be an issue because it's going to be overwhelmed by the amount of demand because of growth and inflation expectations. So how do you reconcile that with what you're saying with if the Fed brings in rates, it can pull demand from the 10-year. If demand is almost constant or getting larger, is, is the key difference there the inversion of the curve? Yeah, because the inversion of the curve implies that demand will be there at that price. Okay. That's why it's, it's a price sensitivity, right? 
And then we've seen exactly that, even as the federal, not the, the federal government has issued a shitload of debt this year, um, and they're going to continue to issue a lot more. What has happened? Everybody said, do, I mean, how many times do we have to hear about, oh, this auction has been horrible. The 30-year auction a couple of weeks ago was horrific, and it wasn't really that bad. But still, what happened? Rates went up, for, you know, 15, 16 basis points on that day, and then, then they went way back down on their lower again. Um, people are making way too much out of supply, which is understandable. It completely is understandable. But that if there's demand for long-term U.S. Treasury, safety and liquidity over the long run at a certain price, then supply is going to be met by demand. And we've seen that time and again. How many times have we heard this argument about too many treasuries? Um, quite a lot. When going back to 2017, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, throughout 2018, kept hearing too many treasuries, too many treasuries. And every time the Treasury issued more treasuries, rates would go down <laughs> to 2019 and 2020 because the fundamentals argued for the pricing of those treasuries. So there is demand for treasuries at those prices because the overriding growth and inflation expectations in the economy are fundamentally, as perverse as it is, willing to accept even the bankrupt federal government issuing massive amounts of debt. That's really the problem here is that it's hard to resolve that what seems like a contradiction. We have a crappy economy and a federal government that's going absolutely insane, but the crappy economy comes first in the minds of the financial system. Mm, so right. we're more concerned about the crappy economy than we are the solvency and the fiscal balance and sanity of the federal government. So the demand for treasuries goes from the crappy economy. That's where it really sets the price here. And if supply, let's say they issued so much that it did impact those interest rates, then is it true to say that the risk reward would improve because the interest rates are higher relative to the overall economy, the U.S. and the global economy? Therefore, that most likely increased demand, bringing down those rate, bringing those rates right back down. It's almost like when Janet Yellen, when they got rid of the uh, uh, the debt ceiling, remember, and Yellen issued all of those bills, but pretty much it gets sucked up by reverse repo because if the bill yield gets up to the point where it's higher than reverse repo, now you're going to have all that money just transition into the bills. And it would, exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly what happened, I know. <laughs> so do you think the same thing would happen with the uh, treasuries, uh, let's say the 10-year, if they do issue, let's say, $5 trillion you know, at auction and the rates go up to, let's just say, 5.5% from where they are now, now all of a sudden it's a different risk-reward for investors. So then they pile into the 10-year, bringing it back down, because they're looking at those growth and inflation expectations being the exact same, if not worse. Wouldn't you want to own a 10-year treasury at, say, 4.5% than something risky? Um, maybe that's only in, that's only uh, uh, returning a couple percentage points more. You take the 5% in the 10-year treasury or 4.5% in the 10-year treasury and say, look, I'll, I'll take that and not look back. Um, especially if I'm not really constructive on the long-run potential of the global economy here. I'll take the 4.5% and then I'll pocket that and run with it for as long as I can. There's also other considerations too. Um, there's a hedge fund basis trade that have absorbed a massive amount of the treasury issuance too. And you have to ask yourself, why, is, why are hedge funds rushing to fill this basis trade need with essentially becoming the warehouse for the federal government? Why are hedge funds so interested in pocketing very small spreads on safe and liquid instruments? Because they're willing to go and, and uh, expend resources on only safe and liquid instruments. It's still a it's still a fundamental expression of the same thing, just in a different form. 
when Fisher and uh, Wixel were talking about growth expectations, how were they defining that? Or were they defining that as nominal GDP or a real GDP? Because it's, you're going back to the Fisher equation, aren't you, where uh, nominal plus inflation equals real uh, real rates, nominal rates plus inflation, uh, or excuse me, real rates. Yeah, real rates plus inflation equal uh, nominal rates. So you're going back to that, I assume. But if so, how are we measuring? Uh, when you talk about growth, how are we defining that? That's the thing. It's not, uh, I don't think, the problem I always have with the Fisherian side of economics, and that just goes through Milton Friedman and, and econometrics, Robert Lucas and everybody else, is that I don't think you can really quantify it specifically as it's exact. It's GDP minus uh, the federal funds rate because the federal funds rate has some sort of inflation mechanism, and I don't, I don't think it's, it's that. Not it's just that real quantity. GDP. It's not just yeah, I think GDP. it's it's a fuzzy concept of just you know, if you're managing money, do you think about it in those terms, or you think I'm looking out and I'm thinking hmm, the economy overall doesn't look all that great, so I'm going to allocate my portfolio more towards safe and liquid. So there's a there's a marginal bid in portfolios and banks and all sorts of places around the real economy that are they're just they're willing to add a little bit more into the safety and liquidity, which has the effect of, of course, depressing interest rates. So it's not like interest rates are responding to exact mechanisms as you know the Federal Federal Reserve would like, hey, we're we're setting long-term GDP based on the CBO's baseline and we're subtracting the Fed's uh, forward forecast of federal fund. No, that's not really how it works. It's sort of we throw everything in the washing machine, and what comes out is lower interest rates. And we're sort of reverse engineering lower interest rates as a complex dynamic process where lots of different people in the real economy have different views. And what comes out is, on the whole, rates that are lower than they are, at, say, at the, at the front end of the curve, which suggests the market is not constructive on the economy, however that works out in individual capacity. So I think the idea of trying to quantify all of these variables is a is a it's a misleading one. It's a fool's errand, but it's understandable why so many people have. So, so the concepts. Right. So you agree with the concepts? Absolutely. The application that Fisher used was a, you think a little too precise. You got to paint with broader strokes. Right. I think the concept has been validated time and time and time again over a century worth of you know, and it's not just U.S. It's all around the world. We see lower interest rates correspond to periods that everybody would agree is depressed economic circumstances, not just in the short run. Now we're not talking about recessions here, we're talking about longer term uh, growth and inflation. So it's, it's not an exact number, but you, you know, it's, it's consistent. It's, it makes sense when you look around and say, okay, interest rates are low and the economy is really not good. And it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. And then you think about that from the perspective of somebody deploying capital, you're thinking economy's not good. I don't want to take a lot of risk here. So I'm going to own safe and liquid. And that's really what it comes back to. When you look at government interest rates or the interest rates on government bonds, regardless of their credit characteristics, they're the safest and most liquid. So if there's a demand for safety and liquidity, that tells you about perceptions of safety and liquidity. Whether we can put numbers on it or not, it's a relative comparison to make. Yeah. Yeah, that that, that makes a lot of sense. And I also, I think we, well, I was thinking about this through some videos and then I heard you talking about it and it, it made me feel better about my observation. Right? So I was wondering, am I right or am I wrong here? And then I heard you talk about it. I'm like, oh, good. I think I'll, I'm, I'm most likely correct on this one. 
because I've been talking about the inversion of the curve, just like you have for a long, long time and saying, guys, this is how it always plays out. These are the reasons it plays out this way. It takes a long time. You got to be patient, but you know, the probabilities are very high that the hard landing is, is what we get because we've had it every single time going back to 1950. And I, but I, I, I wanted to challenge my view myself by saying, okay, what would make me change my mind? And I told, I said this in Rebel Capital's Pro, I've said it on this channel with the whiteboards. I said, what would probably make me change my mind is if we had the curve uninvert with a bear steepener. Right. Because now all of a sudden you've got, let's just assume that Fed funds stayed at 5.25% and we had the 10 year go from uh, 4.5, let's just say up to six or seven. Yep. Okay. Now all of a sudden this tells me something completely different. Now it tells me that the economy is probably doing well because that's what a good uh, economy's yield curve would look like. It would that's actually be exactly lowering the front. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was, I was talking. I was kind of thinking out loud, and I heard you discussing the same thing. So I, I think that's a, a good component to add here because it helps people uh, understand that hey, there are ways that we could be wrong. And it, it, it goes back to paying attention to the curve. And then I guess if you could summarize what we've seen lately with with it doing the complete opposite. Well, that's the thing. You know, even as interest rates rose and it looked like the bear steepening case was gaining, it never did. Um, because you look at other curves, like forward rate curves. And what you saw in the forward rate curves was nothing had changed. Well, I don't want to say nothing had changed. The base case hadn't changed. So you look at forward rate curves like term SOFR, which I hate that curve. I really hate term SOFR contract, but that's what we have. Essentially, the term SOFR contract, what happened was back in March and April and May, when the banking crisis and all that, it was massively steep and, or massively inverted. And it was massively inverted up at the front, which was the market hedging for, okay, here we go. This The, the shit is hitting the fan here. And then it backed off, but it didn't go away. That massive inversion just moved back in time. It moved to the to the back to the rear of the curve, not all that far to the rear, but essentially it moved to the rear. It didn't disappear. The forward rate curve did not uninvert. So even as, as even as the yield curve looked like it was steepening and started to get into the uninversion case, the forward rate curve said, "No, this is not what's happening. It's not the it's not the bear steepener here. It's just a technical quirk that happens every September." So even as the yield curve looked like it was going to uninvert. The forward rate curves are saying, no, this isn't going to uninvert. Nothing's really changed here. All that had changed is the is the timing. So we were we're real certain that something bad's going to, or real confident something bad's going to happen after SVB and Credit Suisse and all that. And then we got a little bit of an economic reprieve, and it went to the back burner, but it didn't go away. And now the back burner started to move back to the front burner, where the forward rate curves are saying, I'm getting a little nervous here. And the forward rate curves are starting to become more inverted toward the front. What do we see in longer-term interest rates? They're starting to act in the same way. The, the inversion on the yield curve is coming back to, it's, it's deepening and becoming more like what it had been earlier in the year. So we never really had a big probability to get to the soft landing. It was just that there were certain curve dynamics at that particular moment in time where the markets were saying, we still believe the hard landing is here. We just don't know where or when, it, or we don't know when it will happen because it's right. still being priced into the forward curve. And the two-year was telling you that as well. Yeah, the two-year didn't move. I mean, it did. It, it had a little bit of a drop down in, in July and early August, but then you know it was kind of it was no it wasn't it wasn't moving much higher certainly in comparison to what the other rates were doing on the curve. The two-year was sort of, which was odd, 
for a lot of ways because everything that everybody was saying about the sell-off in the tens and the thirties would apply doubly to the twos, right? If we were into a higher for longer, as we talked about earlier, the two year is especially susceptible to monetary policy or interest rate policy from the Fed. If you thought the Federal Reserve was going to get to 6% and maintain it for a couple of years, last thing you're going to do is own the two-year treasury because you can get better rates in uh, more liquid markets and at least as liquid markets such as repo. So the fact that the two-year never really sold, sold off was another red flag that was very much consistent with what we saw in the forward rate markets, which was we don't see the, the soft landing. We just don't know when it's going to, we don't know when a hard landing is going to come. So the, the you know, the, the bulls or the bear steepener case, that was never really a great probability anyway. So the markets were, have been, markets have been incredibly consistent, which I think people just lose patience with it. They'll, you know, we've been talking about this for how long and we don't see it happening. So this must just all be a bunch of voodoo and gobbledygook. Yeah. Have we ever had an, an inversion with a bear steepener? I can't remember a case. The closest it ever came was 1997 or 98. Uh, where you had a very we tiny, very tiny inversion. Right, right. And that was just a little bit up front. And I mean, that was the Asian financial crisis. It wasn't like there was nothing. <laughs> it didn't turn into a big thing in the United States, but it was a huge thing around the rest of the world. And what the market was saying is, yeah, there's maybe some chance that it spills over and gets even worse. And then it didn't happen that way. But that's the closest you can come in the historical record to a very tiny inversion and then uh, you know, the market's saying, okay, we changed our mind. We're going, we're going. Was we're the going whole crazy. curve inverted back then? No, it's just a small part of it. Okay. So we can say with confidence that we've never seen where the entire curve has been inverted, where it uninverts due to a bear steepener. Yeah. And even if it was, I mean, it's just a couple basis points. I mean, I, <laughs> that's not really a full inversion. You know, these things are dynamic processes. If you see the curve invert by a couple basis points, that's usually just the the first stage here. And so if the curve inversion never gets past the first stage, was it really ever fully inverted to begin with? I mean, again, it, 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 we tend to make too much out of little things, which is yeah. Harvey, be clear. We're not in stage one right now. We're in stage. No, we're in stage. <laughs> but as you know, as Steve Van Meter always says, we can't put a clock on this thing. That's the hardest thing. Yeah. I wish it was that easy. I wish it was, okay, curve inverts on this day, Six and a half months later, you can expect this to happen. I mean, even going back to the, some of the earlier economic work from Milton Friedman, a program for monetary stability, what he said was, look, changes in the money supply tend to have tend to produce changes in the economy with long and variable legs. And the emphasis was on variable. Sometimes it was six months, sometimes it was much longer. And it's true of not, you know, not the Federal Reserve making changes, because the Fed doesn't make changes in the money stock. When something happens in the monetary system, it could take a while before it becomes a, a finite event in the real economy. That's really where we are here. The markets are saying strong probability of the same thing happening. We just don't know when. We have no idea when it's going to actually come out, when that finite stage actually happens. And there are a lot of reasons to look back on the current period and say there's a lot of unique characteristics here that are preventing the normal normal processes from playing out. But Labor hoarding is the biggest one. Companies are more willing to leave to, to hold on to their workers now than they have ever been. And that's really what makes the recession. Now, there's a there's recession. PTSD from COVID. Yeah, I mean, re recessions begin 
And we don't know they begin because we don't realize the recession is recession until the layoffs hit. And the layoffs usually don't hit until toward the end of the recession. In a lot of cases, some cases it's different. But a lot of cases, the recessions are the, or the, the layoffs are the last part of it. So you can make the argument, as I would, that we've been in recession all this time. We just don't know it because we companies are hoarding workers in a way that we've never really seen before. And they're willing to hold on to those workers betting on a soft landing that as time goes by and we're still talking about recession, raises the probability that the businesses just throw in the towel and say, we've been waiting all year for the soft landing to, to, be, to, to confirm itself, to have a clear visibility that 2024 is going to be a recovery year. The entire reason we're hoarding our workers to begin with, because we don't want to fire them and have to hire them back if we're going to have a recovery next year. Now we see that's a mistake. We see that the economy isn't getting better. Now it's now you know it raises the chances that we get to that terminal point where businesses throw in the towel and they do start de-hoarding their workers, which are mass layoffs. Maybe that's what we saw the in the increase in the unemployment rate in September and October, because the household survey showed a hell of a lot of jobs being destroyed, or at least employment numbers go way down which suggests, okay, maybe we're getting to that point. Um, and that's what markets, and that's market curves, the forward curves, the inversion shifting back toward the front again. All of that is consistent with the idea that, okay, we're going to get to the to the final terminal phase and the hard landing. we just not really sure it's here just yet, but more and more stuff on our dashboard are starting to, to ring alarms. Yeah, and that's what the, the curve ties. That's what the interest rates are telling us. And uh, I always, in fact, just with the whiteboard video I'm looking at, I said this yesterday, where people are saying, well, if the Fed lowers rates, then we're going to go into this economic boom. Uh, and that's what the long end of the curve is predicting. Uh, but what I pointed out is the long end of the curve is predicting lower growth. Uh, they're not necessarily predicting that the Fed is going to raise rates or they're predicting that they're, we're going to have lower growth, which is going to prompt the Fed to lower rates. You, you got to get it in right order. That's exactly. That's the order. It's not... The Fed lowering rates isn't stimulus. It's reacting to the situation that's already bad. The Fed is right. always reactive, and that's what markets know that. So yep. markets are the, the reason they react is because they don't control anything. Right. So the, the, the long-term inversion is saying we're not going to like the situation of the next couple of years. Something something's going to happen. It's going to you know economic growth is going to fall off. Whether that means recession or not doesn't necessarily matter. It's not going to look good. It's not going to look pretty. And so in a situation where the economy doesn't look pretty, what do central banks do? They, they try to stimulate the economy with lower interest rates. Not that it works that way, but that's what they'll do. And even if they don't, it wouldn't matter because, again, growth and inflation expectations are independent of the Fed. Maybe the Fed doesn't lower rates this time. Maybe the Fed stubbornly says, we think inflation is going to be the biggest risk. They can hold, hold short-term rates here. And the 10-year can invert even more anyway. Rates can go down independent of the Federal Reserve. The five-year goes down. The two-year goes down like it is now. Um, yep. So the rates act independent of the Federal Reserve. They have to consider what short-term rates are doing, but that doesn't have to be the primary or even a big consideration in setting portfolios and managing capital and all that stuff. Rates are independent. Yeah, and, and rates are, are, are giving us all of this information. And it's up to us just to acknowledge that, to look at it, and to interpret it based on what they've told us throughout history and the outcomes we've seen. Yeah, and the problem is, George, and you know this really well, is that from the very beginning, we're taught the opposite for everything. We're taught, that, you know, nobody knows how to use, read real curves or bond rates because they're always, we're, we're led to believe it all filters through the central bank. It 
all it all goes into yeah. Jay Powell's mouth. And when you're constantly trying to interpret everything from the perspective of the Fed, none of the stuff makes sense. It's all okay. I don't understand what's going on here. And so you have to step out of that mindset and realize that oh, interest rates do act independently. Now it does make sense. The Fed's doing one thing, but the market's doing something completely different. In the Fed perspective, that's not allowed. We're not supposed to have something like that, which is why they invented something called term premiums to try to explain it as, oh, there's something else happening here we can't really explain either. But the point is, once you step out of that Fed-centered worldview and start thinking markets are acting independently and can, can and are acting independently, then you can interpret these signals independent of the Federal Reserve and they make sense with the the information that we have or the ability to really look at one thing and match it with another thing and another thing. And those things have nothing to do with the Fed. Like I said before, we have the yield curve selling off, but forward rates, the inversion wasn't going away. So how do we how do we interpret those particular moves? Well, it's a short-term fluctuation in the yield curve, but the long-term forward rates say nothing has changed underneath. So we would expect long-term rates to go back down as they are doing right now. But once you step aside from step away from the Fed, all of these things you can start you can start looking that looking at them and interpreting interpret them in ways that actually make sense. Right, right. And on that bombshell, Jeff, I know you've got to get going, so we'll leave it at that. I appreciate you really helping me um, kind of sift through this stuff, and uh, it clears up my thinking quite substantially. It gives me a lot of clarity. So. Uh, again, thank you very much for that. I want to remind everyone that Jeff is going to be at the next Rebel Capitals live event. I don't know if Josh told you, but Mike Green's going to be there as well. Yeah, looking forward to that. I mean, it's it's always yeah, great. Mike, Mike is, uh, yeah, he's great about everything. Yeah. And I, I would also note last Rebel Capitals live where Jeff was there, after his presentation, I had chills because it was so good. I also might be a bit biased <laughs> as I am. Only uh... you, Josh, would get chills <laughs> over Newt Wixel. <laughs> <laughs> A Newt Wixel. That's great. And uh, uh, Jeff, tell them about Eurodollar University, what you're doing there. Yeah, Eurodollar University, uh, we do videos every day, or almost every day, YouTube. That's the YouTube channel is Eurodollar University. We've got memberships and research subscriptions available at our website. That's Eurodollar.University, where we talk about everything, as we did with today with George, through the lens of the Eurodollar system. What? How do we interpret these curves, and what are they actually telling us? All right, buddy. Thanks a lot for coming on again. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll talk yeah, to you, you soon. Yeah, you too, George.